the Murder Mystery Podcast. The story unfolds each week. Will you guess the killer? On the Murder Mystery Podcast, it's The Venetian Affair. Episode 25 No one is around in the Palazzo Mandola, and Olivia goes out to eat. She walks east through the alleyways, as she crosses the San Lucia River on the Ponte del Teatro, then eventually emerges at the waterfront and walks along the Riva del Carbon pathway beside the canal. She finds a little restaurant that overlooks the water and orders Sauvignon. This may be her last night in the city, and she sits and watches the gondolas and Vaporetti plough to and fro while the threads of the case turn in her mind. Maybe she did get carried away with the significance of Emily's necklace. But Paddy's lack of engagement with her evidence about Roger and Ted still frustrates her. And she still isn't sure why he wanted to play it down. He'll be even less likely to do anything now that the faithless child is missing. Her phone, which is on silent, hums on the tabletop. Jess's name appears, and Olivia answers the call. Jess is in a panic. She has talked to Scott, and she's suddenly worried that maybe the business deal that they're doing could be dodgy. Jess explains that she asked Scott about the other man involved. Then she'd called her friend in the Metropolitan Police in London, who did a search of their database as a favour. The pieces of the jigsaw start to fit together in Olivia's mind. As Jess tells her, that the man called Frank is Frank Tanner, a convicted felon. When Olivia starts to ask about what exactly they have all been up to, Jess says it's a long story, and Olivia invites her to come over and meet in the restaurant. Fifteen minutes later, Jess arrives. So tell me, she says, what is this deal that you've been doing? Jess takes a large gulp of wine, and exhales. Six months ago, Scott got in touch. I hadn't seen or heard from him for years, five years, maybe. He said it would be great to meet up, so we met in London and had lunch. He talked about what he'd been doing. He said he runs this Italian kitchen business and how part of the service they provide is not just fitting the units, but doing a whole interior design service for clients. Do you mind if I make notes? says Olivia. It may be useful later. Uh, "'Yeah, fine,' says Jess. "'He then told me that they were having difficulties sourcing artwork for these interiors. "'And as Mum is in the business, could I help them source some pieces? "'Scott then said that the other thing they needed was investors. "'And if I had friends who were looking to put some spare cash into a strong business, "'then this could double their money. "'Did it sound realistic? "'I don't really know now, but at the time it was convincing.' Olivia raises her eyebrows, and Jess looks at her. I know. I know I'm a fucking stupid rich girl. What happened after that? I lined up some of my friends who wanted to invest, and talked to Mum to get some contacts, she continues. All seemed to be going swimmingly. Then it got to three weeks ago, and I met the chap who Scott had been working with, Frank Tanner. It was the day after you and I had dinner in your first night here, do you remember? Olivia nods. Do you think Nick was part of it too? Well, they didn't mention him then. Go on. 
Frank is a horrible man, says Jess. He more or less threatened me if I didn't sort out the art and the cash urgently. Scott tried to play it down. But I don't think Frank would take any notice of Scott. And as it turns out, the guy's a proper criminal. Did your friend say what Tanner had been convicted for? Says Olivia. He did. I wrote them down. Jess pulls out her phone and reads from the screen. Robbery, GBH and intent to murder. Do you think Tanner killed Nick? Says Olivia. Jess is silent, her eyes pleading with her friend. I don't know. Did they mention Nick at any other time when they were talking to you? Or did Scott mention him? Maybe, I don't know, Liv, says Jess. I just want out now. I know. How do I stop it? We go to the police, says Olivia. And you make a statement. Jessica bites the side of her fingernail and takes another swig of wine. Okay. The instant that Nancy appears in the doorway of the Ristorante Quadri, the maitre d'hôtel walks up to her and greets her personally, then walks her to a table for two in the first window of a grand baroque room laid with round tables and starched white linen cloths. They exchange pleasantries, and Nancy is charming, having been a regular in this, the only Michelin-starred restaurant on St. Mark's Square. The artist arrives ten minutes later. He wears an outsized blue linen jacket and a straw hat in the style of Monet. You look magnificent, she says. He kisses her hand and makes a small bow with his head. The waiter pushes in the chair for Malin to sit. Nancy recommends the tasting menu, the Quattro Atti, and a waitress pours their first accompanying wine, a Miller Violo Fiano, 2018. After the first course of Max Baccio and Cappuccino di Laguna, Malin raises his glass in a toast which Nancy echoes. To us, he says. To us. It doesn't seem like over thirty years ago that we were in this city together for the first time, Nancy, does it? I was so young, she says. And innocent. Not that innocent, if I recall. And she laughs embarrassingly. The lights from the water sparkle in her eyes. Was I the first man that you slept with? he says. You were not, thank you very much. I was twenty-four when I met you. Not straight out of school. He smiles. No, you're right. But I was in love with you. I know. Why did you choose Paddy? I was in love with him, she says, looking at Malin. Then you got pregnant? With Jessica. I've never fathered any other children. Malin, I, I wish I had had some sort of relationship with the girl over the years, he says. You were never keen. Malin. He drinks some wine, then looks at her. Jessica is Paddy's. You don't know that. She was tested. When? Twenty years ago, says Nancy. She was in hospital. After a skiing accident, she was... Fifteen. 
They had to do a transfusion match. You didn't tell me. We'd lost touch, she says. I didn't see you for years. But I've always thought I know you have, Alan. I'm sorry, I didn't say before now. I wasn't brave enough. He is silent as the waiter tops up their glasses. She can see sadness in his face and reaches her hand across the table to his. I don't have much to show for my life, do I? He says. Oh, what rubbish! You're one of our greatest contemporary artists. No family, though, he says. No wife? No children? Is that how you measure success? The tangible? She says. What about the joy you've brought to thousands through your work? Your paintings will last forever. They'll be on the walls of the Royal Academy in a hundred years. That doesn't sound like a failure, Malin. After going through all the papers in the office that might contain anything with reference to Roger Thorne, Nicole spends an hour filing them in ring binders, then copies all of the other files from the hard drive and stores everything in the safe. If the police need it, it'll be there, waiting. She locks the office and goes home across the streets and waterways of Venice. Then she changes her clothes and heads out again to a bar near the water to meet Isabel. They arrive at the same time, walking up from opposite directions to the Venice Art Bar on Sestieri di San Marco. I love this place, says Isabel. I know. They have one of the bar's specials, the hatched Negroni, and finish them too quickly, but order more, and laugh through an hour's conversation, forgetting about their recent troubles. Eventually, Isabel comes back to the conversation they came for. Tell me about going away, she says. It all seems to be ending here. I thought you loved your job. I do, one did, she says. All this embezzling stuff has changed it. I'm not sure I trust Paddy anymore. Nancy was the same. Kind and all that. But underneath she's crazy powerful. She'd do anything to maintain her reputation. Come with me, Izzy. What's your plan? Get a job, start again, says Nicole. It's what I do. The doors of the Great Britain Pavilion have long closed for the night, and the space is in near darkness. The only light comes from the makeshift office space, where Christina sits in front of her computer and clicks through the screens on a website. She has spent an hour trying to find the right place, and she very slowly navigated the various pages until she found the one she needs. She types her details into the keyboard. The final tick box on the screen is empty. It is just this that she needs to fill in before sending off the form. She reads the words next to the tick box three times and thinks about what this could mean to her. Her hand hovers over the mouse. Then she relaxes and leans back in the chair. Is this what she wants? It has worked beautifully for the last few years. Why change it now? She doesn't know the answers to those questions. But she does feel that this is now something that she has to do. She clicks the box next to the words 
I hereby give my permission for the adoption agency to make my details available to my child. And she hits enter. And a message saying, form submitted successfully, appears in front of her.